Welcome to Trial Lawyer Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best lawyers in the country. We have them tell great stories of cases that had a profound impact on them. This episode was recorded on Juneteenth, and we're very fortunate to have Jeannie Harrison, who's a phenomenal employment lawyer, phenomenal person, phenomenal leader. Because of Juneteenth, Jeannie shares with us the story of a case that was very meaningful to her, that was very widely covered in the news media in Los Angeles, and is a really, really interesting story. So let's get started. I'm very happy to be talking with an amazing lawyer, an amazing friend, and truly one of the most powerful lawyers that I know. Jeannie Harrison is simply amazing. She focuses on employment litigation, and her practice currently involves a lot of representation of women who've been sexually harassed and sexually abused and other civil rights and employment cases. And Jeannie is someone who walks the walk and talks the talk and cares about her clients and fights for her clients no matter what it takes. And if I ever needed a lawyer Jeannie's who I would call. Jeannie, thank you so much for being with us. Scott, thank you so much. That was amazing and generous of you. And I'm I'm really honored to be here with you. You are one of the most important people in my life, and we'll probably get into that. You're the reason why I went to the Trial Lawyers College. So um, I really appreciate being here. It's my honor. Well, thank Thank you. Jeannie, can you share with us the story of a case that had a profound impact on you? I can. Um, And when you asked me about cases that have had a profound impact on me, I have to be honest, there are many. Um, But one that came to mind is the Tenney Pierce case. And Tenny Pierce uh, is an African-American male who was a firefighter with the city of Los Angeles. And it's a really famous case here in Los Angeles, especially. Um, And uh, he is as big as a very big door. This man is so tall. He's, I think he's six, five. Um, And he has to be probably 250, something like that. And he's the nicest man, so warm and caring and connecting. He, he, when I meet him, he is in the perfect job. He's such an incredibly impressive 
physically an impressive man and strong and as compassionate, equally compassionate and caring um, as he is physically strong. And so he always has a smile on his face and he loves people. And that just radiates from him. So when I meet him, he tells me that he's spoken with many lawyers in Los Angeles and he can't find, he can't get anybody to take his case. Top lawyer after top lawyer has rejected his case. And I say, well, Tenny, tell me what happened. And he says that he was stationed at Fire Station 5, which is over in Westchester, uh, near the Los Angeles uh, LAX airport. And um, he's the only black man on his shift at that station at the time. And he said something that shocked me. Um, I'll never forget it. It shocked me so much. He told me that when he was on his shift and they were in the, the kitchen, all of them to have their, their dinner, actually, um, that he found out that the spaghetti with meat sauce that had been prepared for him did not use ground beef. It was prepared with dog food. And he was fed dog food in his spaghetti with meat sauce by the captain's and the other members of his shift. And I have to, and he, I have to tell you, I had never heard of something like that before the story that he, he tells me that day. And I was shocked about just this, the, the, the inhumanity of this and how somebody could possibly think this was okay to do just, just from one human being to another. But then when this giant of a man is standing in front of me and telling me the story, I'm thinking immediately, how in the world could this have happened? How can this group of his male coworkers possibly think that they're going to get away with feeding this giant man who was bigger than anybody else he was working with on that shift? That they're going to get away with feeding him dog food. And that was an immediate question overriding question for me. How in the world could those people think that this was going to turn out okay? How could they not imagine that he was going to kick their asses as soon as he found out what happened? And I want to know more. That absolutely started my engine my passion and my intellectual curiosity about how could this possibly have happened? The question of how could it happen is what drove me to take the case and dive into it. And Teddy absolutely felt that it was racially motivated. He said, there is no way they would have ever fed a white man dog food. 
And I thought that may really be the case. And I've got to dive into this and find out what happened. Um, and as we went along and I'm doing my research, which I tell you, I, it is my practice in every case, if I possibly can, it is my preference always to take cases well in advance of when I actually file them and, you know, work them up as thoroughly and diligently as possible. And so part of me doing that with the Los Angeles City Fire Department case, um, Tenny Pierce's case, was that I began researching all of the other incidents that were happening at every other fire station that I could find out about across the city of Los Angeles. And wouldn't you know it, you know, this African-American woman was being discriminated against. And that man who complained about something else at a different fire station was getting retaliated against. And it was just, it was popping on, you know, a map basically of fire stations all across the city of Los Angeles, of just rampant employment rights violations. And I said, we've got some systemic problems here. And the reason why this group of men on Tenny Pierce's shift fed him dog food and felt that they could do it was because they knew that they could get away with it. They knew that they would not be held accountable. And very clearly, what was going on was systemic violations, systemic discrimination, systemic harassment, and systemic retaliation. And all of the people in that fire station knew that they had the power against Tenny and they could get away with it. Before Tenny came to me, he reported that he felt he had been targeted and fed dog food because of his race and because he's a black man. And, you know, the department at that point in time did not have a, have a universal process where it was engaging in appropriate investigations, workplace investigations, um, and figuring out what to do about them, et cetera, the things that exist now um, and they have in place now. And so Tenney felt very pressured uh, that he could not trust what was happening in that fire station. Um, and he went out on leave. No surprise there, right? Because he wasn't getting solutions. And that's when he came to me. And these firefighter jobs are callings. I mean, people have a calling. And that's the reason why they take jobs like that. Sure, they also have good pay and benefits. Um, but they're extremely rigorous jobs. They're very demanding. And it's, it's not something, it's not like, you know, just getting sort of any old job. It requires a tremendous amount of effort just to get the job. You have to go through training and academy and you're on probation for a year and you have to meet all these physical requirements, et cetera, et cetera. You have to study, you have to learn things. It's a very demanding job. And so it was not an easy choice for him to go out on leave, but he didn't feel safe. 
so he went out on leave and, and, you know, got some therapy and he goes and tries to go back to work again. And while he's back at work, he has to go do additional training as many firefighters do as well. Most of them do um, those who are going to be in the field. And he has to go one day for, for um, training in this big um, container and it's a uh, flashover training where you have to get into this container and fire flashes all over you. Right. And you're, I mean, first of all, I could never do something like this myself, but this is just part of what they do as part of their training. And so Tenny is supposed to go into the flashover training and he is checking his PPEs. Well, we know what PPE is now, um, personal protective equipment. Um, but he's checking his PPEs and darn if his PPEs haven't been tampered with. They have been tampered with. So not only is his trust broken um, in the fire station itself, where you live with one another, he, they live with one another, but then his trust is ultimately broken because his PPE equipment has been tampered with. And How so, so how was the equipment tampered with? Well, his oxygen tank, um, uh, there was oxygen that had been let out of the tank and there was a component of his mask that was missing. And, you know, firefighters are very careful with their PPEs, as you can imagine. And they're, they're required to be meticulous about uh, maintaining all of their equipment. It's something they do all day, every day, right? from maintaining the the fire truck, the station itself, cleaning everything, having things ready, because you have to be able to be prepared to respond to a fire at any moment, obviously. So he knew that his PPE had been tampered with. And this was not the first time that PPEs had been tampered with within the fire department. And so I think such a key component of understanding our clients' cases is understanding the actual working environment. And I mean, as we do um, through TLC methods is really putting our own selves as much as possible um, into the environment to understand what's going on from a first person perspective. And so, of course, I did that with him to understand what the PPEs were and which parts were missing and the oxygen that, you know, had been let out and all of these kinds of things. And the mo I, I went through with him, you know, the scene. And this was before I went. I'm telling you, Scott, this is before I went to trial lawyers college. Uh, and I'll tell you reason, the reason why I always had to do this kind of thing anyway, we were kind of reenactments was because I couldn't understand things. I'm not imaginative enough <laughs> to understand things without actually seeing it as much as possible. So um, I was going through all of that with Tenny to try to get him to teach me and show me what was really going on. And, you know, He's a very expressive person. And he says, Jeannie, I knew as soon as I saw these, the, the piece from my mask missing and it was nowhere to be found. And I knew when my oxygen had been messed with, like I, my trust broke completely right then and there. 
He said, I could not trust that I could be safe and taken care of by the guys. And that's really the way he he referenced them, by the guys, when I'm going into a fire. I can't risk my life like that anymore because I don't, nobody has my back. And that even gives me chills now because of the trust that is so integral and key to being able to function as a firefighter. And when we go back, because that, that let me on a hole down the rabbit hole of, how, well, how do you build trust in the fire department when you're a firefighter? How does that get built? What are the components of that? How do they talk about that? How do they teach you how important that is? What do they say? How do you learn it? And so I went all the way back to the beginning with him in terms of the academy and training to understand how important trust is and the reason from the fire department's own mouth that they believe that trust is so important. And therefore, it would make sense to the jury when Tenney explained that once that trust was irrevocably broken, once that trust was completely and irretrievably broken, that he could no longer do the job. He told me that he still went in to do the flashover training because he got an extra piece of uh, the, the mask and an extra piece for the mask and he refilled his tank and he still went in and did the flashover training, but he had a panic attack in that container with the fire flowing over him. Can you even imagine how scary that must be? And he never had panic attacks. This guy is legendary. He would lift people, other firefighters up through the ceiling in the middle of fighting fire. I mean, he's repelled off of the top of the 60-story buildings downtown in Los Angeles. <laughs> so this guy isn't just afraid of anything. He's afraid of very little, but once that trust was gone, he simply could no longer do the job. And so what began as, you know, a, 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 an incident of racial harassment and discrimination very quickly became a retaliation case, a hostile work environment, retaliation, constructive termination case. And Tenny Pierce's career as a, like a legendary firefighter in the Los Angeles City Fire Department, was ended uh, just short of 20 years. And that's a case that had a truly profound impact on me because for a lot of different reasons. So I'll stop there. Yeah, no. So share with us the story of after you were discovering the story, what happened next in this story of your work on the case? 
Well, the case became, well, let me back up. Okay. So what happened during the litigation of the case was that the case was originally handled by, um, uh, by the city attorney's office and um, by, you know, essentially in-house counsel at the city attorney's office. And I um, served uh, uh, an inspection demand to go to fire station five and um, do an inspection because I can't understand things, understand things unless I can see them. <laughs> and I routinely in just about every case, every employment case will do a notice of inspection and go, go to the premises because I always learn so much by being in the space. And what I do is I of course have it recorded. I have a videographer there um, and my clients there. And so Tenny and I are at fire station five and he's um, walking us through and, and showing me the station. It was by that time actually not being used because they had opened a new fire station. So we had to imagine furniture there, et cetera. Um, and what I will typically do is have my client go through um, and, and just we'll do a, a video run through and a walkthrough uh, without, you know, much of any dialogue. Just simply him pointing, oh, here's the, here are the quarters, here's the, you know, living room where we would watch TV, here's the kitchen, that kind of thing. And once I'm done with that basic walkthrough, I will then um, finish that take, essentially, and then start a new one where I actually reenact things with my client. And I did then with Tenny in the kitchen. So with the city attorney there, um, I'm having Tenny show us what happened when he was fed dog food by the, by the captains and his coworkers. And Scott, this is a, not a large room. This is, this probably is, it could be smaller than the kitchen at your house. I don't know. Um, the kitchen at this fire station. And so, you know, we imagine he shows us where each individual is seated. Um, they are they are tight quarters where, you know, to walk around once you have 10, 12 guys in this really actually small kitchen um, and they're seated at a table with benches that uh, you have to like shimmy and squeeze yourself between, you know, the wall just to get to your seat. And, 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 you know, your coworkers and the same thing virtually between the stove and just trying to get over to your seat. So Tenny shows us that, um, the kitchen was full with all of his coworkers. There wasn't a single, there's not a single person missing. His two captains are there and he walks in and he's a little bit late to, um, dinner just at the, he's the last person who comes into the kitchen. And somebody looks up and says, Tenny, we prepared your plate. It's there on the, it's there on the stove waiting for you. And so Tenny goes over and he picks up his plate and it has the cellophane saran wrap around it. And he shows us 
how he has to walk by and squeeze himself between his two captains in the stove. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir. Holding his plate to make his way around the table to the other end of the table so he can take his seat on the bench. And he said nobody was talking and everybody was watching him. Everybody's watching his every single move, which is unusual. And he literally, he's, he's walking by and he's, he's brushing up. His rear end is brushing across the table with the captain sitting right there. Everybody knows what's going on. It's obvious. It's too small. You can't possibly miss it. And he tells us the story of what happened. He takes his fork and he picks up, he mixes up the spaghetti and he picks up and he takes a big bite and he says, everybody's watching him and they're still quiet. They're not talking. And he eats it and swallows. And he says, man, this spaghetti, this meat sauce is nasty. Who made this? What is wrong with this? Who made this? And nobody says anything. And he says, I'm going to taste it again. So he tastes it again. And he says, there's, there's something wrong with this food. This is really bad. And he starts sweating. And he says, everybody's looking at them. And there's this one guy who looks at him with this really mean look in his face. And he's laughing. He starts laughing at Tenny, this coworker. And Tenny's trying to process and starting to realize there's something wrong. And then they all start laughing at him. But it's not a ha ha, hey buddy, ha ha laugh. It's a an us against you laugh. And he realizes there's something wrong with his food. And he stands up. And he says, damn it, what is going on? And they're still laughing. And he says, damn it, what is going on? And then one of the guys who is friendly with him says, Tenny, Tenny, I got to tell you what happened. I got to tell you what happened. We, 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 we put dog food in your spaghetti and Tenny loses it. And he says, you did what you did what? And now, now in that moment, people start to get aggressive, defensive, aggressive towards him. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Calm down. Tenny, calm down. Tenny. So when Teddy's going through and telling the story and showing us what happened and he's showing it to defense counsel, it was obvious that the supervisors were in on it. That was one of the a big argument, right, on the technical issue, which is that the supervisors were not involved. So therefore, in terms of racial harassment, there was no you know, strict liability. Um, and they said, well, it was just uh, co-workers and there were no prior incidents and this kind of thing. And by living through it in the moment in the kitchen itself, it became very clear 
that the supervisors absolutely knew. The captains knew they were involved and um, they absolutely condoned it. If they, if, if not participated in it directly themselves. So, and that became very clear to defense counsel. And soon after we ended up getting into settlement discussions, we settled the case because this was going to be the end of Tenney's career and he was going to lose, you know, a six figure job plus uh, pension and, and lifetime medical benefits because he just didn't qualify for those things yet. And they wouldn't bridge him to qualify. Um, we settled the case initially for 2.7 million. Well, word gets out in Los Angeles that the firefighter who was dead, fed dog food is getting 2.7 million. And this becomes an absolute political football. Um, it's on talk radio. It is uh, the subject of, um, you know, all kinds of media attention. And people started sending dog food to the mayor. Um, and, you know, uh, this, the, these radio show hosts, John and Ken, were talking about it all the time. And it turns out that Tenney engaged in what they called pranks. Now, he never fed anybody dog food. And as part of his testimony, um, when he was deposed, he was asked questions about whether he ever participated in a fire department ritual um, which was that they would strap one they would strap a new guy down on, you know, a gurney and shave his pubic hair. Now, I'm not kidding you. These grown men would do that to one another. And Tenny, Tenny said, no, I don't, I don't remember participating in something like that, in one of those kinds of pranks with the, this person and at that station and all this kind of stuff. So then all of a sudden what happens is a picture of Tenny at um, one of those events gets sent to John and Ken and that goes out on the air and basically the city kind of erupts about the black man who got fed dog food and whose career has ended getting $2.7 million when he engaged in this other prank against somebody else. Okay. So then what happens is we, are working at, we're working anyway with National Organization for Women, the NAACP, and other local groups because we actually have a, you know, an ongoing concerted campaign to reform the Los Angeles City Fire Department. I also ended up getting um, a four-cause finding from the EEOC against the Los Angeles City Fire Department that um, concluding that uh, women and minorities were routinely, systematically harassed, discriminated against, and retaliated against. And so we had this whole separate, well, overlapping campaign going on for reform, systemic reform. And we had to pack the city council um, to argue against uh, the mayor vetoing the $2.7 million settlement. There's a Getty image of 
me and uh, Tenney together um, as a result of that city council argument, which I made. Um, and nevertheless, Antonio Villaragosa vetoed the settlement. And then I had a meeting with Rocky Delgadillo, who was the attorney at the time. And he has me in his office and he says, Miss Harrison, I'm going to be sending this case to outside counsel because, of course, we have to go back and we have to, you know, get we have to, you know, continue the litigation because the settlement was vetoed, which I think had never happened before. And so Rocky says, I've got to send this case out to outside counsel. And he says, you would better get ready. You would better get ready because this is going to be the mother of all litigation. And he looks at me and he leans in and he says to me, nobody goes down the middle against Rocky Delgadillo. <laughs> I think he had proceeded that with, you know, I played football in high school and college and nobody goes down the middle against Rocky Delgadillo. And I'm just looking at him. And I'm thinking, I don't know how the hell I ended up here, okay? But I look at him and I say, and it just comes right out of me. And I say, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I grew up having to hunt my own dinner, so I'm going to be just fine, okay? And so we go at each other like that. And it was very, very funny. And that's as much as I remember of the meeting with Rocky Del Dio. And so then I leave and they hire Jones Day. And interestingly, Jones Day has the whatever, 50th or something floor in one of those buildings that Tenney had to rappel out of the top of when it was being built. Or maybe it was after it had been built and it was just one of the training things he had to do. And so when we're up there for, I don't know, the fifth day of his deposition or some absurd thing like that, um, he tells me, oh, I remember repelling off the side of this building. And I think, you know, hopefully this is all going to turn out okay. So we litigate like hell. We continue litigating like hell, depositions is depositions. And I end up having a, as a matter of fact, um, um, uh, geez, what's his name? Garcetti, our current mayor. I want to say Eric Garcetti. I wanted to say Gil, um, but Eric Garcetti. Okay, so what happens is Eric Garcetti is on the city council, and um, he reaches. He has his staff reach out to me, and um, they want to meet, have a secret meeting, okay, um, to talk about potentially trying to settle the case again. So we end up meeting at a dive bar in Atwater Village at like 10 in the morning. I walk in the back of the dive bar in Atwater Village and sit down in a red booth in like a hardcore alcoholics bar <laughs> and meet with Eric Garcetti. And he says to me, because the, the trial was soon going to happen. I don't know, maybe we were a couple months away from trial, something like that. And he says to oh, and, and, and the LA Times was planning on live blogging the trial and all these kinds of things. And he says to me, 
I'm really worried that the trial on this case is going to tear the city apart. And I said, I am too. And I think that's a reasonable fear for both of us to have. And he said, I would like to figure out if there is some kind of way to settle this case. And I said, well, there was, and it got vetoed. And he said, um, I, I'd like to try to see if we could restart the discussion. And at that point, Patty Kanaga at Jones Day, um, she was at Jones Day at the time, was really the lead defense counsel. And she and I sort of took a leap of faith to connect and start to talk. And as a result of us doing so, the case did ultimately settle again because Tenney really didn't want to continue to put his family through it. His daughter was 15 years old and the case was so notorious that she was being targeted at school and on the bus to and from school. And there were reporters who would be camped out in front of their house. They just, the Pierce family couldn't escape it. And so Tenney decided to go ahead and settle the case. At that time, we were close enough uh, to his 20 years that, um, and the city agreed to bridge him to his 20 years. So we got his pension and his lifetime medical benefits for himself and his wife. Um, and also um, about 1.5 million. And in the meantime, they spent over another 1.2 in excess of that, um, continuing to litigate the case. So that is probably the most impactful case of my career for many different reasons. And we were able to continue um, the campaign to reform the Los Angeles City Fire Department. And we did, we did reform it. And is it perfect? No. Is it better? Far better than what it was. And that was a that was a, a team effort with many, many involved people. And it's something I'm incredibly proud of. So thank you for letting me tell the story. Jeannie, why did this have a profound impact on you? Because Tenny broke my heart. And even though my heart was broken, um, I was able to get get it together and keep fighting. And I think it it had it taught me that you know even people I would put up on a pedestal, you know, because my house burned down when I was eleven years old. I had to I had to climb out of the window to escape in the middle of the night. And so I put firefighters on this pedestal. And I did with Tenny. And then when I found out that he had participated in one of these, you know, pranks before, it's not the same as what was done to him. Um, it just broke my heart. And so, but I found out that even though it did break my heart, um, that 
I could keep on and that he's a beautiful, wonderful human being, just like I described at the very beginning. And as we all are, he is just human and he makes mistakes too. But that doesn't mean that it's okay to do to him what was done to him. And so I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson from that case. And it also had a profound impact on me because, you know, with community groups and civil rights organizations, we work together to create change, systemic change. So right now in this moment, when we are in, you know, the, the thank heavens, we are in the moment where we are that society um, is demanding change in terms of how blacks are treated um, throughout the country by police. And, and hopefully that's going to you know, carry through in employment as well. Um, I do know that against all the odds, when there are committed people who remain focused on what's right, we can make the change happen and it can be different and it can be substantially measurably better. And that's, those are the reasons why this had such a profound impact on me. And Jeannie, we can hear your fight and your passion and your, you know, absolute determination to, to get justice and the, 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 the anger that comes about when you see someone who's been betrayed, someone whose trust has been betrayed, it, it, it ignites a fire in you. Where does that come from? It comes from my own personal experiences as a kid. Um, when growing up with an alcoholic father who was very angry, very mean drunk, um, and who would target my younger brother. And I decided to intercept my father when he came home, when I knew he'd be going after my brother. And it makes, I just have, it's part of my DNA that I stand up against bullies and people who do bad things to other people. Um, and, and as I told the story, you know, that when I, when the first, the, when the first person I had to really fight was my own father. Nobody, no other fight is as scary as that. Never. So that's where it comes from. Well, you are such an incredibly caring and kind and powerful fighter. You're a tremendous role model for all of us. 
And I'm very glad, not only glad to know you and to have you as a friend, but for the work that you do day in and day out. And I, having worked with you, I know the relentlessness and the nights of no sleep and the depths that you'll go to to ensure your clients will be fought for, will get the best representation possible, and, and will get justice. And you're certainly a role model to me. And I know you're a role model to lots of lawyers in Los Angeles and around the country for not just the great work that you do, but the great person that you are, the way you're, you're uh, always there to help others who are looking for, for wisdom and guidance. Uh, I know you're a phenomenal role model to the lawyers in your firm, and I'm so glad that you're going to be the leader of our, our local TLC, the Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles. Um, you're, 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 uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing this time with us and for doing what you do and for teaching all of us. Um, Scott, I, I really appreciate it, but I'm just like you and I'm just like everybody else, all of the other lawyers from TLC and those of us who fight on behalf of the underdog. I just do what I believe is right. And I, I do it every single day, just like you. And I have to tell you and to tell, you know, my TLC brothers and sisters that I, I am the person I am today because in part, in really important part, because of TLC, because of what everyone who came before me in TLC and everyone who's come after me in TLC and I am so grateful to you um, for having told me about TLC. And I'm grateful to every single person who was there, who taught me, who opened my eyes, um, who comforted me. Um, and there were many and who have been there for me since. And so it is one of the greatest privileges I have in my life to be part of this tribe. So I am incredibly honored that you asked me to be here. I, I really love you, Scott. And I am, I'm just, I'm a big, huge fan of yours. So thank you. Thank you, Jeannie. I love you too. And thank you. Thank you for joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes, and I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www.scottglovsky.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also 
check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, A Primer for Lawyers. That's on Amazon. Uh, I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people, and it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.